you got a Bible, you can open to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, as we conclude this series of messages entitled 7, What Jesus Has to Say to the Church by Looking at the Church in Laodicea. Now what we've seen so far over the course of this series of messages has been that what Jesus is saying to the church is he's trying to give them a vision and a picture of what a true, healthy, living church looks like. And we've seen so far that it's a loving church, a church that's filled with love for God and love for people. It's a holy church that takes conduct seriously before God. It's a church that's committed to truth. It's a church that perseveres and endures. It's a church that has real spiritual vitality and not just an external shell of a reputation, but there's a real inner reality at the heart of it. It's a church before whom God has set opportunities and they're walking in them and holding fast to the faith. And this morning we come to see the seventh mark or seventh characteristic of a true and living church that Jesus says is an utter and absolute dependence upon God. So read with me in Revelation chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 14 and read down through verse 22 together. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, a few years ago, I, I, my son, when he was probably four or five years old, and he kind of got off of training wheels on his little bike, his first little bike that we bought him, uh, little Lightning McQueen cars, I mean, it was killer, okay? Um, but it had these little, you know, the little small wheels, and man, he would get on that bike when he got off of training wheels, and those little legs would just be pumping as fast as they could, and he wasn't really going anywhere, because that wheel only had so much ground to cover every time it made a revolution, but we would go on running rides together, okay? And so I would go out for a run in the neighborhood, and he would ride his bike with me. And so we'd get out there onto the kind of uh, bike, hike and bike trail, and we were running along. And I would always try and coach him up every time before we left, right? I said, Caleb, every time we come to an intersection, I need you to stop. And I need you to look, what, both ways to see if there's any cars coming before you continue on the trail across the street, and so, uh, you know, that poor little dude, he was out there just pumping those pedals as fast as they could go, trying to cruise down that sidewalk. And so I would kind of hold back a little bit and let him run. He'd be about five yards ahead of me, just to keep an eye on what was going on. And most of the time, when he got to the intersections, he would slow down and stop and wait for me, and we would look, and then we would keep going. 
Well, one day, he decided that I, 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 he just forgot that it was, he needed to stop. He forgot that he needed to check for traffic. He forgot he needed to look for cars. And so we're cruising along, and he gets to the edge of the sidewalk, and I'm expecting him to kind of lock the brakes up and slide, you know, kind of whole deal, and look back at me and be like, oh, what's up, you know? But he doesn't. And he just keeps rolling out into the intersection. And I can see out of my peripheral, there's a car coming. And so at the top of my lungs, I scream, stop! Caleb, use the brake, stop! And, and I'm sure the people in their backyards, right, are like, is that the pastor down the street? What are... <laughs> right, because I'm just, I'm just frantic at the top of my lungs because I see the peril. I see the danger coming. I see him about to intersect with this vehicle that's much bigger than he is, much stronger than he is, and has the potential to do him great harm. And so I sharply, loudly, at the top of my voice, yell and to get his attention to call him to stop and pay attention to what's going on around him. Those of your parents, you understand. You've probably been there before, okay? And here's the reality that's at work in that situation, and it's the reality that's at work in this text as well as this. Is that the stronger the love and the greater the danger, the sharper the rebuke. You with me? The stronger the love and the greater the danger, the sharper the rebuke. And you see those three things at work in this text whenever Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea. You see a strong love, you see a great danger, and you see a sharp rebuke. And we want to take a look at those three things this morning to see what Jesus has to say to this church. And what we've seen so far in this series is that despite the distance in geography and the distance in generations, that we live in a different place and a different time. Listen, I'll say this. There is perhaps no other of the seven letters that is more relevant to the church in America today than this one. And, and, and I want you to keep in mind as we work through this, right, that the stronger the love, the sharper the rebuke. Because Jesus issues a rather sharp rebuke because he sees a great danger. In the life of this church. And so, first, the first things out of the gate. What is the danger that Jesus is addressing here? What is this great danger that provokes such a sharp rebuke from Jesus himself and, and discipline? Listen, it's not false teaching. We've seen that already. Jesus has warned the church about false teaching and false apostles, about those who would claim to be apostles and, and are not. It's not false teaching. It's not even, even false ways of living. It's not wheels off morality where everything kind of goes and they're following down this trail of just brokenness in the way that they're conducting their lives. It's not that either. It's not opposition or persecution from the outside that Jesus is addressing here as a great danger. What Jesus says is the great danger for the church at Laodicea and I believe for the church in America in the 21st century is this. It's lukewarmness. It's lukewarmness. That's the great danger that Jesus is addressing here. Look, look at what he says in the text in verse 15. He says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor, or neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either one of, one of the two, either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Listen, to understand what Jesus is saying here, you need to understand a little bit about Laodicea and where it was situated. Laodicea was located in the Lycus Valley, along with the cities of Hierapolis and Colossae. We have another letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae called Colossians in the Bible. Now, the city of Laodicea had a lot of things going for it in the ancient world. It was a city of commerce and trade, of scientific and, med- scientific and medical advancement. Uh, it was a city of fashion and industry. But there was one thing that the city of Laodicea did not have going for it. It was a major glaring weakness, and that was the absence of an adequate water, water source. And so they had to build these massive aqueducts that would transfer water from one location to the other. And so Hierapolis was known for its really refreshing, warm, hot springs, right? Kind of therapeutic baths. The city of Colossae was known for its cold, refreshing sources of drinking water. But by the time either of those got from Hierapolis or Colossae to Laodicea through these aqueducts, the water coming from Hierapolis had cooled to a lukewarmness. The water coming from Colossae had warmed to a lukewarmness. And both had picked up all kinds of minerals and sediment along the way. So by the time it reached Laodicea and was consumed by those who were there for the purposes of hydration... Oftentimes it turned their stomach and made them vomit. And Jesus says, listen, the great danger that is facing you, church, is the same danger in your water supply, that you would be lukewarm. And, and, and listen, Jesus, this is, this, is, this is serious because Jesus doesn't say, because of that, my wrath is kindled against you. Is that what he says? He doesn't say, because of that, my anger is, is rising against you. What he says is, because of that, you turn my stomach. You, you make me sick. That's, that's what he says. That's, that's not my interpretation. That's literally what he says. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because you turn my stomach. You make me nauseous. It's a very serious condition. Which begs the question then, what is this lukewarmness that threatens the church at Laodicea? And I think Jesus goes on to answer that in the very next verse, and it's this. It's self-sufficiency. It's self-sufficiency. Listen to what he says in verse 17. For you say, in other words, your estimation, your perspective, the way you see things. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. See, the city of Laodicea was at the crossroads of two major trade routes. So commerce flowed in and out of the city constantly. So it was so wealthy that the city uh, was known for its banking. There was banks on every corner, right? There was Bank of America and Chase and, you know, First United and Fidelity. And you had all these investment firms lining the streets. It was an incredibly wealthy city. In fact, it was so wealthy that in AD 60, when an earthquake rocked the region, they were the only city not to solicit Rome for funds to help rebuild, but they rebuilt themselves with their own wealth. The Roman historian Tacitus said this of Laodicea, that she arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. And what had happened in the church was they had embraced 
this self-sufficiency of the culture. They might have had impressive buildings. They might have had impressive staffs. They might have had impressive programs. They might have had all kinds of resources channeling through that church. And as a result, it made them self-sufficient. And they no longer depended upon anyone for anything, including God. They were self-sufficient. In addition, Laodicea, something else you need to know, they were well known for their manufacturing of clothing, especially a particular kind of black wool that was used to make garments that would clothe the aristocracy, those at the higher levels of society, kings and princes and rulers. So they were known for their fashion industry, right? They had runways and fashion shows, right? They were constantly releasing new lines of clothing in the boutiques, right? They were all popping up right there in the downtown center. But they were also a city that was famous for their medical school. And so they had all kinds of scientific and medical research going on there in the city of Laodicea. And it led to major advancements and breakthroughs and treatments. They had ointments for ear ailments and salves for eye ailments. So the city in Laodicea, they saw themselves as the people who possessed wealth. They possessed vision and health. They possessed fashion and beauty. They were self-sufficient. They did not need the help of anyone, including God. They were fine all by themselves. And the church had embraced this way of living and seeing reality as well. And as one commentator said it, he said, In the letter to the church at Laodicea, Jesus calls the church to recognize that their needs go deeper than what their resources can handle. That there is a deep dependence that's missing in the life of this church, in the life of these Christians. That they've come to believe that they are sufficient in and of themselves, for themselves. They're abundant, this commentator goes on to say, their abundant physical and economic resources have dulled their sense of need for God and the gospel, and Jesus calls them to recognize the deep need they have so they will cease to be lukewarm. Now you're like, what what does this have to do with me and the church today? Listen, listen church, we are living in Laodicea. I know I'm not, I live in fate. (laughs) I live in Rockwall, I live in Roy City, right? I don't live in first century Turkey. But listen, we are living in Laodicea. In North America, we are living in Laodicea. In Dallas, Texas, we are living in Laodicea. In the heart of the most, one of the most affluent counties in all the state, if not in all the nation, we are living in Laodicea. We are living in a place that is known for its affluence. We are living in a place that is known that is known for all kinds of startup and business. Corporate headquarters are moving here, right? And wealth is funneling in and out of this metropolitan area in which we live. It is a booming economy in Dallas, Texas. Even when there was a downturn in the market several years ago, and many places on the East Coast and West Coast were devastated. We took a dip, but it wasn't the kind of devastation that was experienced in other parts of the country. Because the economy was so strong here. We're also an area that is known for its, its medical and healthcare research. We have, we have research hospitals in downtown Dallas. Listen, my daughter has benefited from them, right? She has had world-class plastic surgeons, world-class maxillofacial surgeons, world-class eye surgeons, world-class uh, plastic surgeons that have all done work on her. Right? In her seven surgeries over seven years, we've benefited from that. But it's a place of medical advancement and research. It's a place of 
trends and fashion and beauty. Right? You've got, you got designers who live in this area. You've got people who help shape culture who live in this area. We are living in Laodicea. And what, I, what we need to see as a church is this is that we are at a major disadvantage. I want, to, I want you to hear this. We are at a major disadvantage for really embracing the gospel and seeing life-altering, shaping, and transforming change in our lives. Because we don't have an accurate assessment of the real needs of our lives. Because we are living in Laodicea. Right? You can pick up a copy of D Magazine. <laughs> right? The best in Dallas. And you can find the best places to eat with the finest cuisine to pass across your lips. Right? I can be full and well fed. You can find in D Magazine the, most, the trendiest boutiques to go and shop at, either online or in stores. And you can be well clothed. You can, you can find the greatest real estate. Right? To go purchase and make investments in a booming economy. Real estate is continuing to rise. If you've got the money, you can buy in low and eventually sell high. Right? You can find the best legal care, the best medical care. We are living in Laodicea, and as a result, it dulls the sense of need that we possess in our spiritual lives. It, 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 it kind of it paralyzes us from having an accurate estimation of our real need. And as a result, we are at a disadvantage for real embrace of the gospel and real spiritual zeal. We are primed for lukewarmness and self-sufficiency. And Jesus says, it is a great danger, so great, that it turns my stomach. Have you fallen prey to that, church? Have you fallen prey to that in your own life? Where you look around and say, I've, I've got pretty decent health, I've got pretty decent home, I've got pretty decent kids, I've got pretty decent, oh, I've, got, I've got kind of the American dream, right? A 2.3 kids. I, where that, I guess the third one's a dog or a cat or something, right? I got, a, I got a two-car garage or a three-car garage. Maybe I got a little bit of land now. I got some property to take care of. And maintain. I, got, I got everything. And we just kind of settle into this, 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 this stupor where we're kind of, kind of intoxicated and dulled to our real sense of need. Is that you? Wealth has the tendency to do that in our lives. Prosperity has a tendency to do that in our lives. Listen, the Bible is pretty clear that wealth in and of itself is a neutral thing. It can be used for either good or evil purposes. But one of the tendencies that prosperity brings along with it is the dulling of our sense of need. Listen, we live in the, one of the wealthiest nations in the world, but do you know at the same time in the, one of the wealthiest nations in the world, we also have the highest number of psychologists and psychotherapists. Why? Because there are so many people who believe that, 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 that if I can just climb to the next rung on the ladder and achieve a little bit more, then I'll be happy. And all of a sudden they reach that rung on the ladder and they realize there's still a hollowness, not happiness. In their lives. 
And they climb, if, I, if, I can, if I can just live in the right zip code, right? We have all these, all these, these competing, these competing gods, just like the church in Laodicea. They prided themselves on all these things and it had turned into this nauseating self-sufficiency. And Jesus says, you may not even see it, but you're at such a great danger. And so like me running behind my son who's about to get hit by a car, he's screaming at the top of his lungs with a sharp rebuke. With a sharp rebuke. Because like Laodicea, we've become... A, a, we, we live in a culture that measures itself by its, our physical appearance, by our outward beauty, by our clothing, our fashion, and our trends. We live in a culture that is fixated on achievements, a culture that's fixated on accomplishments, a culture that's fixated on awards and accolades, a culture that is fixated on promotions, possessions, and positions. That's the culture in which we live. And listen, that has seeped into the church. And here's one of the ways you know that it's seeped into the church is because you run into the average a tender of an evangelical church in our community in a coffee shop and you strike up a conversation with them and they're going to believe that somewhere in the book of Hezekiah, God has said, God helps those who help themselves. They believe that's in the Bible somewhere. Because self-sufficiency has crept into our ways of thinking and our ways of living. And Jesus says, you don't even realize how perilous of a position you find yourself in. That's the first thing. There's a great danger. And Jesus says, it's the lukewarmness of self-sufficiency. But then he issues a sharp rebuke and he does so by telling them, you are not sufficient. You are not sufficient. Look what he says in, in verse, um, verse 17. He says, you, you say, you perceive, you think that you're rich, you've achieved, you've reached the pinnacle, right? You don't need anything from anyone. And Jesus says, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is so brilliant, right? We often think of Jesus as compassionate, Jesus is loving, but he's so brilliant. What he does in three words usually takes me like, Eight sermons to do, right? And usually even then, I'm not very good at it. But he does it in three words. He takes the cultural idols of their day and he flips them on their head. He says the very things that you are taking pride in are the very things that put you in such a perilous position. He says, you think that you're wealthy, but you're actually poor. You think that you have vision, but you're actually blind. You think that you're clothed in fine garments, but you're actually naked. Jesus turns these things on their head. Listen, wealth in, in Jesus' day was, in, just like in ours, in many instances, it was a symbol of, of, of status or of significance in the community. Right? And so if you were wealthy, you were well regarded. If you were wealthy, you were well liked. If you were wealthy, you were always invited because you had great status in the community. You might be treated differently if people knew that you had money or you came from money. Right? And Jesus says, if you pride yourself in that, what you don't realize is actually there's a spiritual poverty there that runs so deep and puts you in such great danger. And he says, you don't even see it. You don't even see it. 
Right? Jesus says, listen to his counsel, even as he rebukes them. I love the way that he says it in verse 18. He, he, counsel, he doesn't command them. He could, right? He could issue a command, but he counsels them. It's like he entreats them. It's like, come buy gold from me. In other words, don't put your security, don't invest your security in worldly wealth, right? But what, he's, what he says is this, come buy gold from me. Gold that's been refined by fire. In other words, you want real status? You want real security? He says it's got to be tested. It's like 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter talks about a faith that's been refined by fire. It's been tested. And it's proved to be valid. And Jesus says, come, come take it from me. Right? Don't seek your security elsewhere, but find it from me. Don't seek to clothe yourself. He uses that imagery again. Don't seek to clothe yourself in the garments of the culture. But you, when you do, ultimately, what you find yourself is to be naked. And to be naked in the Bible is this. It's to be ashamed. It's to have your shame brought forth and broadcast to the entire world. And Jesus says, that's the real position that you're in. You think that you're wearing, right? All the designer labels. But in fact, what you are is just exposed. And Jesus says, you think you can see, but what you really need is the salve that I can give you so that you can see accurately and judge rightly. Jesus rebukes them incredibly sharply. Why? Because there's a great danger of nominal, self-sufficient lukewarmness. Where they've lost dependence upon God. How do you know if you're in line for a sharp rebuke? Because we all need them every once in a while, don't we? I know I do. Let me give you a couple diagnostic questions that I read earlier this week. They're somewhere in here. There they are. First, which do you view as more pressing, or more urgent activity in your life? Right, The things that you make carve out time for and make priority. Reading or watching the news or reading and studying the scriptures. Obviously both are valuable, right? Day to day. But if you had to choose between one of those things, which one do you carve out time and prioritize? Is it that I want to keep up with the Man, I could go a lot of places here. I want to keep up with what's taking place in Washington, the latest person to be fired, dismissed or resigned. That's a nightmare. Or, or do I put my face in the book and see what God has to say? That I'm living by eating these words and not frantic by eating these words out here. Do I live with security because I'm eating and feasting on the word of God? Which is more a higher priority to you, right? Are you self-sufficient because you think if, if you just know what's going on, then you can know how to respond to it. Versus, versus feeding on what God's word has to say and living in deep dependence upon him. Second, if you had time to do one thing or the other and your choices were between taking time to pray and checking your email or perusing Facebook or your Twitter feed or your Instagram page, whatever those things were called, uh, if, if, you had, if you had to choose between one or the other, to get on your knees before God or to see what all of your 2,000 non-really friends are doing this morning whenever they wake up, <laughs> what they're eating for breakfast, 
what they're eating at lunch, kind of vacations they're taking, right? All those things that make you envious because you don't eat as good as they do or travel as well as they do. Which one do you invest time in? What are you depending on? Third, if you could choose between two things, a lottery ticket that was guaranteed to win a billion dollars with a B. Not a million with a M, but a billion dollars or an empty bank account with the assurance that God would provide for you and meet your needs if you trust Him. I was talking with a guy about this yesterday at a party. God had, at a birthday party. God had called him to start a ministry, a non-profit ministry. And um, he and his wife are trying to take steps to do that full time. He's out trying to raise funds. And there's this, just, just, he feels an inadequacy as a provider. And he feels this uncertainty about where, money, where, where money's going to come from. But he's taking that step of faith and believing that God's going to provide because God's called him to this work. And if you could choose between a billion dollar lottery ticket or a bank account and believing day to day that daily bread's going to be on your table and that your needs are going to be met, which would you choose? To live in self-sufficiency. So you're like, I would choose the billion dollar lottery ticket and give 900 million away. <laughs> Praise Jesus, Right? Which would you choose? Fourth, which would you choose to have your hopes and dreams realized in the American political scene by seeing all your candidates elected and all your political issues dealt with in the way that you want them handled or the opportunity to identify yourself as an alien and stranger for whom this world is not home? Which would you choose? To have Everything in the culture, all the wind of the culture below your sails in the direction that you want to head. Or to have to fight upstream a little bit at times because this isn't your home. Which would you choose? To live in deep dependence upon God and to buy gold from Him. Have a status that is incorruptible. Have a status with God that is, 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 will not fade, as Peter says in 1 Peter. To have security rooted in Him. To be clothed in His garments. Jesus says, what you don't realize for some of us is that we're actually, even though we might be wealthy or we might be sufficient, we're actually in poverty. And we're actually blind. And we're actually, all of our shame is exposed before the world because we're not resting in the right thing to clothe us. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just give us a great danger and he doesn't just talk to us about a strong rebuke, but he also, he also, uh, or, or a sharp rebuke, but he also, you see here, a strong love because he invites us. Jesus doesn't say, I give up hope on this church in Laodicea and just like, I'm gonna write them off because he says something. What does he say in verse 20? He says, I'm standing at the door right now, church. And I'm knocking. Now listen, many evangelists who travel and do crusades, they use this as an appeal for those to come walk the aisle and get saved. That's not the context in which Jesus is using this verse, in which he says this. It's in the context of speaking to Christians, to a church, and saying if you would abandon all of your self-sufficiency, if you would abandon all of your status because of your wealth and possessions, of all your positions and promotions, if you would abandon the ways that you've tried to clothe and cover yourself to deal with your own shame and your own nakedness, right? If you would abandon 
the lenses through which you're viewing life and receive mine, Jesus says, I'm standing and I'm knocking. I'm not asking you to come and knock on my door. I'm already at your door knocking. And if you would open the door, Jesus says, I would come in and eat with you. You know what that means in the ancient world? To invite someone into your home in the ancient world, to dine with them, was an invitation to intimacy. It was an invitation to enjoy fellowship. It was an invitation to enjoy intimacy with Jesus himself. That you were a part of his, his family. That you were a part of his clan. You were a part of his tribe. You were a part of his posse. You were a part of his peeps, right? He inviting you in to intimacy. Inviting you in to relationship. Inviting you in to deep enjoyment. And Jesus says, I'm knocking. And if you would open the door by abandoning your self-sufficiency and throw yourselves once again in deep dependence upon me, Jesus says, you will know an intimacy with me that you've never known. Because I reserve the deepest levels of intimacy for those who know their deep need for me. who move beyond lukewarmness, who move beyond self-sufficiency. And they just know they need me. They just know they need me. I heard a story in a sermon this week from another pastor on this text, and he was telling the story of a, a lady in Ghana. They, they'd gone, taken a, a, a short-term trip over to Ghana to visit um, and do some work with a church over there. And he said the lady got up to welcome people to the service. And as she welcomed people to the service, she was welcoming their American guests. And as she welcomed the American guests who were in the congregation there that morning, she made this statement. She says, we want to, and, and we want to extend a welcome to our American friends who have come to Ghana where we have great joy because we know that we need Jesus. And I wonder how many of us who sit in American churches, even in this one, would say, we have great joy because we know that we need Jesus. And we have deep intimacy with Him. And we walk with Him, and we talk with Him, and He tells us that we are His own. Is that you? As we close this morning, there are two commands that Jesus gives for us to walk in this. And we're going to hit them real quick and the first one is this. As he says to us, he says, repent. You know what it means in this context to repent? It means a couple of things. First of all, it means change the way you see. You gotta change the way that you see. You know, I don't, I don't know about you, but I, 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 I wear, I've worn corrective lenses since the time that I was in third grade. Okay? And so every once in a while I go to the eye doctor, they gotta put those things over me and go, number one, number two, number two, number three, number three, number four, number, two, number four, number one, right? And they gotta just keep working, working, the, working the system till they dial in my vision, right? And for some of us, we have, our, our, because we live in a culture that progressively feeds us messages of self-sufficiency constantly. Our vision gets cloudy over the course of time. And as a, sometimes we need a vision checkup. And we need the lenses of the scriptures to be put over our face constantly, 
or else our vision becomes cloudy. It becomes cloudier and cloudier and cloudier and cloudier until eventually it's like, man, we're just, like, we're, like everything is just blurry. And all of a sudden, there are moments. You ever had those moments in which God just kind of goes, boom, with a sharp rebuke, and all of a sudden the lenses of the scriptures wash over your face for the first time in a long time. And it brings everything into clarity, and you're going, whoa didn't realize how cloudy things had become for me. And for some of us, that's what repentance looks like. It's a change of the way that we see. And what you need for that is, listen, you need personal reminders on a daily basis. That's why you need to be in the Word, not every week, but every day. That's why we need to be on our knees, not once a week for for three minutes in corporate prayer, but every day living in dependence upon God. Not, God, I've got this until I get a diagnosis. God, I've got this until the stock market crashes. But every day, even when things are smooth sailing, that we're living in dependence upon God, crying out to Him, recognizing our deep spiritual poverty and our need for Him in our lives. You need personal reminders of that on a daily basis. But you know what else you need? You need corporate rehearsals of that. That's what we do every week when we gather in this place. As we sing songs that gives us lenses through which to see. As we pray prayers that gives us lenses through which to see. As we hear sermons that gives us lenses through which to see. To kind of wash over our eyes, sharpen our vision. As we have these corporate rehearsals of the gospel week after week after week after week even as we're about to do today as we come to the table rehearsing the gospel of the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us that we are not right we're not spiritual professionals right who compete at the highest levels but as I've used this illustration before we're all just scrubs on scholarship that's what we are And when we come to the table, we're reminded of that. That we are not sufficient in ourselves. And so we need to change the way that we see. And as we change the way that we see, we need to take Jesus. Second of all, repentance also looks like taking Jesus at his word. He says at the very beginning when he introduces himself, he says, I'm from the, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness. In other words, my words ring true in every culture, in every corner of civilization. In every society, in every place, in every time, my words ring true. Let me ask you this question, church. Will you take him at his word? Will we take him at his word? Will we look at the, the homes in which we live? Will we look at the cars at which we drive? Will we look at the bank accounts which we stack money in? Will we look at all of those things that would lend us towards self-sufficiency? Will we look at them and will we mock them? Just like they did in the Old Testament when they mocked the gods of the nations, we look at them and say, you are a good gift, but a terrible God. And some of us need to learn to do that. You need to look at all the zeros in your bank account today and say, you're a good gift, but a terrible God. Look at the home in which you live, the clothes that you wear in your closet, all the shoes on the shelves, right? All the hobbies that you enjoy and say, you're a good gift, but a terrible God 
and take Jesus at his word when he says, you need gold from me, you need clothing from me, you need vision from me. And I would take you at your word and so I would look at those things which promise fulfillment and I would say, you're a good gift and I can enjoy you for the glory of God, but you are a terrible God and you will destroy my life if you're moved to the center. And that's the next thing that Jesus says. Not only repent, but he also says, be zealous. See, that's the cure to spiritual tepidness. Is, is, that's the opposite of it, isn't it? Zealousness. And what, if you look at that word elsewhere in the New Testament, oftentimes it gets translated as jealous. Now, isn't that a bad thing to be jealous of other people? Yes, it's a bad thing to be jealous of other people, but it's a good thing to be jealous for the right things. As a husband, I'm jealous for the affection of my wife. As a wife, she's a jealous for the affection of me as her husband. If we weren't jealous for each other, something would be wrong in our relationship. And listen, Jesus is the most beautiful and magnificent of all people, and he's saying, what I want for you and from you is to be jealous for me, to move me to the center of your life so that everything else gets filtered through me. That you'd be jealous for me. That I'd be the center. Right? That all of your affection would be directed toward me. All your allegiance would be moving toward me. All your loves and loyalties would center around me. So that everything else, as Jesus uses these words in the Gospels, he says, everything else looks like hatred to that. Everything else looks like indifference to that. Because I'm so central to your life. Jesus says, that's what Christianity is. It's to be zealous, not to be lukewarm, not to be tepid, not to be self-sufficient, but to be deeply dependent, seeing the way Jesus sees, having our lenses, having our eyes sharpened and focused daily and personally, weekly and corporately, taking Jesus at his word, calling those things that he says are not going to fulfill you, and using, using those things as good gifts, but they do not make good gods. And tearing down the idols of your life, and when, as you do, all you, what you will find is there's a, there's a fire that begins to be kindled in your heart and a zealousness that continues to grow and build so that you are jealous for Jesus, that he's at the center and everything else orbits around him. I want to leave you with this as we share communion together this morning. That what Jesus calls us to do for him, I want you to know that he's already done for you. You know that? When he says, be jealous for me. I want you to know he was jealous for you first. You know, when Jesus says, buy gold for me. Do you know, in, in, in Jesus, in the, and Paul says this to the church at Corinth, he says, you know, Jesus had all the wealth in the, wealth in the world. And he was stripped of it all and became poor. And he became poor for your sake so that in him you might become rich. That Jesus had, the, the, had true and sharp and clear vision. But you know what? As he was betrayed, he was blindfolded and beaten. They said, prophesy. He lost his sight eventually, even in death, so that you could see clearly. And Jesus, he was, he was a king who was stripped of all of his garments and beaten so you could be clothed and have white garments, pure and undefiled before God. He did all that because he was jealous for you. And he says, 
What I want from you is to be jealous for me. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, would you make us the kind of people who are zealous for the gospel, who are not spiritually lethargic or lukewarm, who are not self-sufficient in this culture of affluence, who don't think that we have, we, 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 God, may we recognize continually that we are not your gift to the world, that you are not lucky to have us on your team, but we are just scrubs on scholarship. We are deeply dependent upon you for all things. And without you, we are nothing. God, in a culture that tells us, that reinforces the message of self-sufficiency, God, would you carve out a kingdom people here at Redeemer who are not lukewarm, but who are zealous because they know that they're insufficient. We know that we're insufficient, but we also know that we are so loved and that you desire intimacy with us and that the barrier to that intimacy is our own self-sufficiency. So God, tear that down by your Holy Spirit and raise up a people who see clearly enough to look at all the things in the world that promise us satisfaction and security like golden garments. And then we would look at them and say, you are a great gift, but a terrible God. God, may we be a people who are jealous for you because you were jealous for us. And as we come to the table this morning, help us, help us, God, to remember. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.